final night of our good soil evangelism class and we have to we're starting on page 42 and we've got to do 10 of these uh, lessons tonight so i'll have to make tracks in my defense and i'm always willing to defend myself about <laughs> things in my defense is here we are in this last session we got all these to go but remember we had to cancel two sessions for weather and so that uh, really really threw us off if we had at least one of those back then we would have been great if we had two of them we'd be able to elaborate more on some of what we're covering here. So I apologize about that. What's that? For rain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple of bad nights. So, so I'm going to have to just uh, make tracks to get through. Thanks for your indulgence with it. Page 42 and the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And you see at the top there, page 42, Jesus then died on a cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb for our sins and dealt the crushing blow to Satan that God had promised to Adam and Eve back in, in Genesis chapter 3. The Jewish historian Josephus described crucifixion as, quote, the most wretched of deaths. First, a prisoner was scourged mercilessly with a short, heavy whip, and then he was nailed to a cross where he suffered excruciating pain for hours before the rigors of crucifixion finally snuffed out his, his life. So it's, it's very horrible indeed. And we have a handout for that. It's a two-page handout, one sheet, front and back, and I have them right over there. So on the way out tonight, uh, I encourage you to pick one of those up, and then you can read some more detail about what uh, crucifixion in, involved. We're not going to take time, for time's sake, to read Psalm 22. But David, King David, is the one who wrote that uh, psalm about the Jewish Messiah approximately a thousand years before Jesus was born, hundreds of years before even crucifixion was used as a death penalty in Canaan. So here are some indications in Psalm 22 that the person described there, even though David's writing a thousand years before, is about the Messiah, the one who, who would come. Uh, it's a, a prediction in, uh, in Psalm 22 that he would be ridiculed publicly while he was being crucified. We see that in the crucifixion of Jesus, that he needed to be delivered or rescued he was in a, because he was in a dire situation. He was surrounded by enemies who were harassing him. His life was poured out like water, and his, all of his bones were out of joint. And again, these are things that the New Testament confirms. His feet... Uh, had been pierced. His strength was dried up. He was suffering intense dehydration and thirst. His bones were exposed. Someone was gambling to take possession of his garments, and so he was actually not clothed at the time as well. That's all in Psalm 22, and then you see these things happen on the uh, cross with Jesus. In Luke uh, chapter 23 in the New Testament, referring then in real time to the events of the crucifixion. Now, as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. So Jesus falls under the weight, and they choose this man to, to help him. And there were also uh, two, two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, Psalm 20, 22. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of, of God. The soldiers mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of, of the Jews. So what is that uh, prayer? That's the question on page 42, that prayer where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're, they're doing. What does that uh, tell you about, about Jesus? Here he is in this just uh, immensely dire situation, and yet about whom is he thinking? thinking about other people. He's thinking about their plight, despite the fact that he's going through this most horrible of deaths uh, himself. 
when it says here that this inscription was written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, it's interesting because those were the, the three forces at play at the time of Jesus in the first century. Uh, Greece was the dominant cultural influence going back to uh, Alexander the Great spreading Greek culture. And so even in Palestine, the Holy Land, it was, it was Greek culture. Latin was, represents Rome, represents the Roman Empire, the political power. So you have the cultural power, you have the political power, and then Hebrew, Judaism, the, the religious power. So you have all three of those coming together, and you see in the story about Jesus, you see all three of those playing a role. You see uh, a, a number of cultural elements related to Greece, and then, um, and then of course, the Romans, and then uh, Judaism all coming together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 uh, says that Christ is our Passover. Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Calls Christ our Passover. Now this coming Sunday, during our worship hour at 9.30, we're going to devote the entire hour, as we do periodically throughout the year, to the observance of communion, the Lord's table. And I'm going to be referring to this and Christ and the Passover at that time. So, uh, but here, here are some similarities between the Passover lambs that were killed in Egypt when Passover was, was implemented. You guys remember a few weeks ago, we saw that God gave these plagues to Egypt because they were, he, uh, Egypt was holding in slavery God's people for 400 years, sent Moses to say, let my people go. God sends these plagues, 10 of them, the 10th, was death upon the firstborn of Egypt. And in order to have that fate uh, pass over you, then you were to take a lamb, a particular type of lamb, a lamb without blemish, and you were to take the blood of that lamb after sacrificing it and put it on the doorposts and the, the lentil. And so likewise with regard to Jesus, part of the reason he's called our Passover is because the Passover lamb was to be a male without blemish. The lamb did not die because of anything that the lamb had done. And the innocent lamb shed its blood and died in order to save others. And of course, that's what was going on with Jesus' death as, as well. And as he's crucified, as we saw, you had these two criminals, one on one side, one on the other side. And on uh, event number 32 is about that in your notebooks, a repentant, a dying thief. As Jesus was dying, one guilty man who was being crucified beside him placed his faith in Jesus and was granted the gift of a life in paradise beyond the, uh, the grave. And so here's what we're told. <clears throat> then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and, and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And so which of these were, were true of this uh, repentant criminal with all that's, that's being said there? We are justly receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then Jesus said to him, or well, then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. So what things were, were true about him? Well, look at all of these here. He feared God, acknowledged his own guilt. He acknowledged Jesus' in innocence. This man has done nothing wrong, he said. He believed Jesus was truly a king. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come in your, your kingdom. He believed in life uh, beyond uh, death. When he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom with someone who's being put to death, then he obviously believes in life after after death. He believed that Jesus could bestow some kind of kingdom favor on him so that I can be part of this kingdom as well. And he made a simple faith-based request of Jesus, remember me. So what about the, the what, the when, and the certainty of, of Jesus' promise? Well, the what is that Jesus promised this man would be with him in paradise. That was the promise given. The when, he said today. This will be the case. And the certainty was Jesus said, assuredly, I tell you the truth, this is going to be the case. You will be with me in, in paradise. 
So what other, as you think about Jesus saying to this guy, hey, there's a paradise, and because of your relationship with me, you can be a part of this, this paradise. Where else in Scripture have we seen a, a paradise? Right at the very beginning, God put humanity in a garden paradise. And Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. We're going to see at the end of our time together today, he's going to return again, and God is going to restore that which was lost because of the entrance of humanity into, into sin. And then you have uh, a passage going on in Luke chapter 23. I don't think I'm going to read it, right? Luke chapter 23, but let me just uh, explain to you that there was a Roman centurion there, and this Roman centurion concluded as he beheld Jesus going through all of the travails that he did, and then ultimately the crucifixion, how he was thinking about other people, even though he obviously had his own his own very difficult problems to deal with. He concluded, the Bible tells us in Luke 23, quoting, surely this was a righteous, righteous man. And then there are some, in your notebook there, Mark chapter 15, some other historical facts that were given regarding Jesus' Jesus' death. God the Father uh, turned his back on Jesus on on the cross. Jesus cries out, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is, you know, some of the poets have put it, a God-forsaken moment where God the Father is looking on God the Son as he takes upon himself the sin of all the world, of all time, upon, him, upon himself. And the Father's eyes are too pure to look upon, upon sin. And so on the one hand, the cross is a joyful time for us because God in his love has taken our penalty upon himself, so we don't have to pay it. On the other hand, it's a, it's a tra- tragedy, it's a crime. Uh, it's something that should never have had to happen other than because of our, our sins, so we placed him there. And so it is uh, joyful grief, one of the songs we sing, with joyful grief I lift, I lift my head. So it's joyful on the one hand, but it's, uh, it's grieving, grieving on the other. And then at the same time, in Mark chapter 15, as Jesus is crucified, it tells us that the veil in the temple was torn in two. Now, do you guys remember we saw that schematic of the the tabernacle? And that's the same design in the later permanent building of the the temple. And the, the key place, the key portion of the tabernacle and the temple was the holy place, and within the holy place was the most holy place, and that's where God met with, uh, with uh, humanity. Well, dividing the holy place from the most holy place is this, this curtain. And that curtain was torn in two. Now, what's that signify? It signifies that because of Jesus' death on the cross now, people have direct access to God. He becomes our high priest. I was explaining on Sunday to some of you who were in my uh, second hour class on Sunday, And I was explaining that I'm not a priest. We don't have priests. There are not priests in the the New Testament other than believers themselves. Uh, The Bible teaches something called the priesthood of of every believer. But there's no special caste of clergy that are priests. But rather, we can go directly to God because Jesus is our high priest. And symbolizing that, this curtain is torn when Jesus is, is crucified. And then not only did, in Luke 23, that Roman soldier say that surely this man was a a righteous man, Mark records him as saying something else as well. Surely this man was the Son of God. And so Jesus gives himself on, on the cross and all of the drama that goes with that, as given in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John. But thankfully, he didn't stay in the grave and he didn't remain dead. And so that's our next event, the resurrection of Jesus. Some of you know the name Alistair Begg. He's a, he's a preacher and he's Scottish. Is he Scottish or Irish? Which uh, Scottish, okay. And so he's got the Scottish accent. And so, you know, if you've got the Scottish accent, there's a whole appeal to that. <laughs> and you're, you know, and you're 20, your IQ is 20 points higher because you've got British accent or a Scottish accent. But he's a really good preacher, uh, too. 
and he's uh, perhaps one of the more famous stories he's ever told, illustrations he's ever given, is about the three that were crucified. And the one that Jesus told, this day you will be with me in paradise. And you know, this guy knows nothing. He's, he's on the cross with Jesus there, and he's just, all he knows is he's a criminal, Jesus is not. And they have the dialogue that we, we talked about. And so he dies that day, and he goes to heaven. And, you know, Begg says, can you imagine this guy showing up at the pearly gates, you know? And, and Peter says, uh, hey, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he says, you know, do, do, you have, do you have an invitation? And uh, are you justified? Are you born again? And the guy's like, I don't know anything about any of that. I don't know what justified means. I don't know what born again means. All I know is the guy on the middle cross said I could come. <laughs> okay. And, it, and it's actually very powerful, though, because that's why you go to heaven. It's because Jesus says so. And Jesus says so because of what Jesus does. Jesus did this work, and it's because of that. It's not because of you. It's not because of me. It's not because of anything about us. It's, it's all centered on, on him. And so the entire first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is pointing toward him. And then your New Testament starts with him coming. And then he does this work to die on the cross in full uh, fulfillment of the symbolism of you know all of the stuff you saw in the first part of the Bible and all the sacrifices of animals and all of that. But then, thanks be to God, he is raised as well. So, lesson 33, the resurrection of Jesus. On the third day after Jesus died, he was buried and was buried. God supernaturally raised him from the dead to demonstrate his power over sin, death, and, and hell. So here's what uh, Hebrews Chapter 2 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so the question in your notebook is, what purpose for Jesus' death do we see in verse 14? And that is to destroy the devil the one who had the, the power of death. We'll see that a little bit more in uh, future lessons this evening. But it does harken back to Genesis 3.15 that Satan is going to remember, he's going to bruise your heel, but you're going to crush, crush his head. And that's now Jesus is doing this crushing of the head. And then what was the purpose of Jesus' death in verse 15? It was to, re to release those who have been bound by fear of death. That would be us. And so if you are a Christian, if you're related to Jesus, if you're like the thief on the cross and he says, I can come, you know, it's nothing special about it. But if you have received what Jesus offers and had that applied to you, then you have no fear of death. You have, you, you have no fear about where you will be after death. And as a matter of fact, you look forward to the other side of death, living in a fallen world and all the junk we've got to go through even with the joys that God grants us in his mercy in a fallen world, we ought to look forward for the, to the next one. And because we have no fear of death, we, we can't. Then there's Luke 24. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, deal with the resurrection of Jesus. They each have an account about that. So Luke 24 uh, has, has one. And I'm just going to summarize the evidences that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. Uh, we're told in Luke chapter 24 that the stone that sealed the tomb had been rolled away, that the women who entered the tomb did not find the body of Jesus, that two angels informed the women that Jesus was, quote, not here but is risen. The angels reminded the women that Jesus had told them that he would rise again on the third day. And then that passage also says Peter, the apostle Peter, ran to the tomb to look for himself, found nothing there other than the burial cloths in which the body of Jesus had been wrapped. And then Luke 24 goes on. The question is, what did Jesus do to prove that he was not just a spirit, that he was a physical body that had been raised from the dead? Do you guys remember that he made an appearance to his apostles there, and they're startled, as you might, might imagine? And he says, hey, it's me. Now, he's, he's, he's in, in his body, but he's in a glorified body. And so that's now a body that is fitted for its new environment. That's what a, 
You know, our bodies are fitted for their environment, and we will all have a glorified body. I'll be able to recognize you. You'll be able to recognize me. But we'll have glorified bodies fitted for our new environment. And these will be incorruptible bodies. And so, you know, there's some difference, but it's him. But he had to take a little time. To, and, he says, uh, and notice, he still has these scars. And he says, hey, here are the, here are the scars to, to point out it's me. Now, you know, I had a, I had a hip replacement a few years ago. Am I still going to have my hip scar? I don't think so. But see, I don't think my scar really matters much. Jesus' scars matter greatly. And, and I true, and I think, that's, I think that's the deal. I think that we will be regularly reminded that we're here because of him. We're here because of his scars. And then in that episode, he also says, hey, you guys got anything to eat? <laughs> and so here he is in his glorified body, and he's eating with them as well. Those post-resurrection appearances of Jesus answer some of the questions that we sometimes have about, hey, what's it going to be like? But it looks like in these glorified bodies, we'll be eating and drinking. And uh, we'll, we, will, we will know each other uh, as, we, as we were here, except without sin and decay and, and all of that. So, so a number of the characteristics that we have now will be carried on into heaven. Uh, we've got the last few lessons tonight are on the future. So I'll save most of this for that. But just for now, just lose the idea that our future home with God is on a cloud strumming a harp, okay? It ain't that. It's, it's, it's us living and actually serving and doing, and doing things in our, in our bodies. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, D, true or false, we can have confidence that the things Jesus said about himself were true. Uh, were true. Of course, that is true. So the fact that he is alive shows his power over death. And what he said about himself is true and the claims he made about who he is. And then true or false, we can have confidence that God was satisfied with Jesus' death as payment for our sins. And of course, that's true also. That uh, God the Father was pleased with the totality of Jesus' life and the totality of his obedience. So from, from moment one, Jesus obeyed God the Father in every respect. And that included obeying him him to the point of death being willing to go to the cross and so god the father now looks at his entire life not just his death but his entire life leading up to his death and he's satisfied with that this is indeed the perfect sacrifice and god the father signifies that by raising him from the dead and so his resurrection indeed shows that to us And then E, as you think back over what we've studied, how would you answer the question, who is Jesus? One great literary critic and philosopher has said that there are only three options. I mentioned these on Easter. That C.S. Lewis said, he's either, this is what you got. You can't say he's a great guy. <laughs> he's either crazy. Uh, if he says he's God, and he's not, he's crazy, and, and, and he thinks he is, and he's not, he's crazy. If he says he's God and he knows he's not, he's a liar. Or he wasn't as the Lord God just as he said. And so those are your, those are your options. Lord, lunatic, or liar, the, the, the trilemma. He claimed to be God, and so his claims were either true or false. If they're false, then you got two options with them being false. He knew that, and he deliberately misrepresented. A liar, a hypocrite, a fool. He didn't know his claims were false. He's deluded, so he's a lunatic. Or, if his claims are true, he's the Lord, and then now the options are left with you and with me. You accept or, or reject. And, and Jesus leaves you no, no middle ground on that. Uh, I either am or I am not. You either believe that or you do not. And so history is all centered on him, and the most important decision you will ever make is centered on what you do with him. All right, lesson 34, the ascension of Jesus. And so he was raised uh, from the, the grave. He's risen from the dead, and then he ascends back to heaven from which he came. So remember that when he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, that's not the beginning of his existence. 
He's existed from all eternity because he is God. God came to earth and became man, and he became the unique God-man. He's fully God, fully man in one unique person. So he came from heaven. He came uh, uh, from uh, uh, heaven to, to earth to become man, to do, uh, f- fulfill his mission. But now he ascends back to heaven from which he came. After his resurrection, he made numerous earthly appearances to his disciples and then ascended to heaven to be with the, the Father. So here's there's your religious art uh, for you. And here's what the Bible says in what's called the resurrection chapter. In, it's all about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He was seen by Cephas, then by the Twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then all the apostles, last of all seen by me, that is, Paul, who's writing this, as by one born out of due time. So, true or false? More than 500 people saw Jesus alive after His resurrection. Most of them were still living when the letter to the Corinthians was being written. The answer, that's true. And so here, in effect, Paul is saying, hey, lots of people saw Him. And so if you want, there's some of them are still around for you to go and, go and ask. And then Acts chapter 1 says, Therefore, when they had come together, they, the apostles, They asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You notice, can you see very small there, it says page 7. So page 7 in your notebook is that map. So if you're interested in where Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria are, you can remind yourself about all of, all of that. So here's Jesus having this final meeting now with his first followers, the apostles. And just before that, that's Acts chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. Just before that in verse 3, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says that Jesus appeared for a period of 40 days showing himself that he was alive by, quote, many convincing proofs. So for about six weeks, Jesus is walking around, and he's showing himself to to people and proving that, that he's alive. And now he's getting ready to ascend back to the Father. And then that last verse, uh, verse 8, that you will be my, uh, you shall receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Those are the last words that Jesus spoke on on earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner, as you saw him go into, into heaven. And so they, uh, what promise did the two men, these two angels, give to the followers of Jesus? They said Jesus is going to return back to earth. And two important details. It's the same Jesus, they say. So the very same person who lived among them, died for them, been raised, he's going to come back. And he's going to come back in like manner as you see him go, meaning that this is going to be a visible a literal, a physical return just like his ascension was. And so we be, and the Bible teaches later on that that's exactly what, what happened. The next time that Jesus then appears in the story of the Bible, this is all Acts chapter 1, is in Acts chapter 7. And in Acts chapter 7, you have one of Jesus' followers, a man named Stephen, who is being executed for his faith in, in Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 7 is almost entirely a sermon that, that, um, that Stephen preaches while he's uh, ready to be stoned to death for his faith in, in Christ. 
And toward the end of that sermon, you notice there it says Acts 7, verses 54 and 56. So that's, that's a long chapter. Most chapters in the Bible don't have 54 verses. So you get to the end of this sermon, and what it tells us there is that, that he's ready to die. Stephen is ready to die, and as he looks up into heaven, he sees Jesus. So the next time that you see Jesus, where is he? He's in, he's in heaven. Why? Because that's where he ascended to. Where is he going to come back from? He's going to come back from, from heaven. So that raises the question, what is Jesus doing now in, in heaven? And the, the Bible teaches Hebrews chapter 7. You see it listed there? Hebrews chapter 7. And that passage is teaching that he's making intercession for his, his people. Um, and so he is our, our intercessor. Uh, and uh, he's, he's our advocate, the Bible teaches, uh, which is a term that's sort of like your legal advocate, your, your attorney. You know, so I know we got at least one attorney in the group here, so I don't want to say too much about you know, our attorney friends, but... You know, if, if you don't like attorneys, at least there's one good attorney, and that would be Jesus. <laughs> and he's, our, he's our, our advocate. And so, you know, Satan is accusing before the throne all of the time. But the fact that we are related to Jesus means that we have an advocate with the Father. And uh, that advocacy is based upon his work on our behalf and that we're related to it. So no claim of Satan against us before the Father can take because the work of Jesus overcomes that. All right, and so Jesus is now in heaven. He's going to return from heaven. Meanwhile, we're here, and we have a mission to carry out. And we have now this message that's centered on the person and work of Jesus to now spread in his world, and that's what Lesson 35 is about. <coughs> Peter proclaims the good news in Acts chapter 2. So 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit of God came upon the followers of Jesus as Jesus had promised. So remember in chapter 1, he said, you're going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria. We've been going through the book of Acts for quite a while. I understand that on Sunday morning. We're almost done, those of you that are getting impatient. <clears throat> and uh, so you may remember way back then that uh, we saw that, that, that the book of Acts, the 28 chapters of the book of Acts are are laid out geographically, that the first several chapters and the activity that's recorded there is all in Jerusalem. But then when you get to chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, now it starts to move outside of Jerusalem to, in fact, Judea and, and Samaria. And then you see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in chapter 9, who we know better as the Apostle Paul. And Paul begins to go on these journeys throughout uh, Asia, throughout Europe, and he is going to cities, major cities, proclaiming the gospel message so that it goes to the ends of the earth. So there's this geographic Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the, the ends of the earth, and that's what we've been, we've been following. On this occasion, Acts chapter 2, you see B there, one of the disciples of Jesus, Simon Peter, presented his first message about Jesus. Now, based upon what he had personally seen and heard, what did he say about Jesus? I'm going to tell you what he said, okay, for time's sake. So he, in that message uh, that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2, he talked about Jesus' life. He talked about the fact that Jesus did miracles and, and signs to show that he was indeed who he claimed to be. So he first talked about the life of Jesus. Then he talked about the death of Jesus. He said he was delivered by the, over to you by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, and you have taken him by lawless hands and crucified him and put him to death. That's what he says. So he talks about the life of Jesus, but then he talks about the death of Jesus. And notice in that one verse, he says, Peter says, this happened because God's determined, that God had determined that it would happen beforehand, and that God had planned it before the world began. So on the one hand, it's God's plan. On the other hand, there are wicked people who did this. 
So you see in that one verse what you see a lot of times in life and you see in episodes throughout Scripture. You see this interplay between God's sovereign plan being worked out, but people being the means through which that is worked out. And often those, those people, are they're all making their own choices, often evil choices, and a sovereign God uses those to carry out His work. And you see that very, very uh, directly in the death of Jesus. And then Peter talks about his life, death. What do you think he talks about next? His resurrection. So in Acts chapter 2, as he's delivering this message, he quotes from the first part of the Bible uh, about the, the resurrection and then affirms that Jesus indeed was raised. And then fourthly, his ascension. So his, his life, his death, his resurrection, and he talks about in that passage his ascension as well. His overall conclusion was this, therefore... After he's laid all of that out, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and, and Messiah. So he's your Lord, and he is the one, the Messiah, that was prophesied in your scriptures in the Old Testament, and that we've seen all of these predictions about him. All right, so take a look at... Lesson number 37, that's the, the message that Peter gives. Notice that it's centered on the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. But now these last few lessons are about the fact that Jesus is going to return. Jesus return as king. And you read about that in a lot of places, uh, but the last book of your Bible, the 66th book, the book of Revelation, is a place that talks about a bunch of these future things. And, you know, a lot of people are afraid of Revelation because it's the place where you find things like Armageddon. It's the place where you find things like 666. You find things like a guy, uh, the, the beast, he's called, with the false prophet, the Antichrist. I mean, it is, you know, you just read through that. Um, that can, yeah, it can be pretty scary. Um, and there's, there's uh, death and Hades, and there's the, the rider on one of the four riders uh, on, on the horses uh, that are pictured there is uh, the rider called Death. I mean, yeah, a lot of... A lot of scary stuff there. Scary if you're not on the right side of this whole thing. So when I went through Revelation a few years ago, I made sure to, to title the entire series, God Wins. Okay. So as we go through this, I just want to remind you all, you know, we win in the end here, but it can be, it can be that. And it's a literary style that's got lots of symbolism in it uh, as well. But it teaches that Jesus... Um, as you get to the end of that very last book, Revelation 19 and 20, that Jesus will return to earth. Now this is the, the Jesus who's going to return to earth is you know, the one that we've seen. The same Jesus is going to, to return. And so in Revelation 19, he's, he's coming back to earth. And he's going to be accompanied uh, by the armies of, of heaven. So you've got these four facts that emerge, even though it's symbolic language, Revelation 19. The first is that he's going to return, but then secondly, when he returns, he's going to be accompanied by the armies of heaven. So who are these armies of, of heaven? Well, in all probability, that would be people who have gone to heaven before, and he's coming back from heaven. And so that would be you. If you're you come back with it, it'll be me. And these are armies. And so the book of Revelation teaches that the armies of the earth have gathered against the Lord and against his people on earth, that are still on earth. And he's returning then. This is the end. He's going to establish his kingdom. And he comes back with his armies. That would be us. Now, the way it's laid out, he does all of the, he does all of the, the work. 
Jesus does. You just go along for the ride. So, you know, you, you, if, you're, if you're one of those, if you're one of those people that's like wanting to break stuff, this is not your opportunity to do it. He, he does the breaking. You're just with him there, okay? But we accompany him. And he will defeat those who oppose him at that time. So who are these, these enemies? Well, this is, this is humanity run amok. You know, all the stuff that we've seen for all of these weeks about uh, humanity rebelling against God and the consequences of that and the sin nature that goes with that. And remember I said that, I don't expect you'll remember this, but several weeks ago I said, you keep seeing this cycle with God giving his grace, but then people sin, and then there's judgment, and then God gives grace again, and you keep seeing this over and over again. Well, at some point, God says, this is the, this is the end. And he's given his grace, and he's done this cycle over and over again, but he's removed his hand of grace from humanity at the end. The restraints upon sin have been removed. So that when I say humanity run amok, that's what I mean. God is restraining the effects of evil in our world now. The world's got lots of problems now. If God were not restraining the effects of evil now, it would be much, much worse than it is. And there's coming a day when he will remove that. And when he does, it's going to be hell on earth. And so who are these people? This is humanity run amok. This is the natural state of humanity. This is what we do unless God intervenes. And so this is what people are, are doing. I mean, remember uh, with Noah and the flood going way back. I mean, that's what happened. And so the thoughts and the intents of man's hearts were only evil continually. And God judged the world. Well, now that's, that's what's happening here. But instead of a flood, it's at the end. And in doing so, fourthly, the wrath of God will be justly bestowed. Why is this just and, and fair? Well, God is an absolutely holy God. God cannot constitutionally, by His nature, He cannot tolerate sin. Sin must be punished. In order for Him to be a God of justice, sin must be punished. So it's not that just God does punish sin, it's that he must punish sin. So there are some things that God is constrained to do, and there are some things that God is constrained that he cannot do. But those constraints are all internal, character constraints. No external person or thing constrains God. The only thing that constrains what God does is who he is. And you should be thankful that his nature constrains some of what he theoretically could otherwise do. The Bible says God, I'm quoting now, Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19. Numbers 23 and verse 19. God cannot lie. Notice, not just God doesn't lie. He can't. He's incapable of lying. That's a good thing, isn't it? But that's his nature. He's a God of truth. And so he cannot lie. And he also cannot allow evil to go unpunished. And that's actually a good thing too because that means justice is done. That's the reason that all of us naturally have a sense of justice, because we were made by a God of, of justice. And so, because He is just, He must carry out ultimately justice. And He has done that in one of two ways. His justice was carried out on the cross in Jesus, so that sin was punished in Him. And He offers then like the, like the serpent in the wilderness. And then Jesus likened that to himself, remember, just as Moses upheld the, the serpent in the wilderness and those who looked to it were healed, so everyone who looks to the Son will be saved. And so God is, God is saying, sin is going to be punished. I have punished it in myself. God has come to earth and taken the punishment for you. And so receive the gift that he offers. And justice is done. But if you reject that form of justice, there's another form of justice. And that's what this is at the, at the end. So that's Revelation 19. 
Revelation 19. All right. Yes, Revelation 19. I did? What did I skip? 36. I skipped less than 36? Oh, I did? Huh. Why did I do that? Now, wait a minute. I uh, talk about Jesus lesson 36. Okay. Oh, Jesus returns for believers. Yeah, thanks. All right. So, prior to him coming back and doing everything I just said. <laughs> so, so, if Jesus comes back and all that stuff starts happening, just tell him, hey, <laughs> you missed chapter 36. <laughs> So all of that stuff is happening, but prior to that, there's this return for, for believers. And so Jesus is in heaven, and he returns. And here's the picture of that. And, you know, again, the religious art. But, but he, notice, he is not, um, he's not an earth. He's not standing on the earth. That's on purpose. When he returns for believers, the Bible says that we are going to meet him in the air. So the next thing that happens, Jesus has ascended back to the Father, but the next thing that happens is He is going to receive us to meet Him in the air. And that's why this is pictured the way it is. And that's why it's clouds. Can you see the clouds there? And then you see people, and everybody's got a white robe. The Bible says nothing about all those you know, white robes at the time He receives us into, uh, in the air. But uh, that's called... The rapture. You guys have heard of that? The rapture? And everybody who believes the Bible believes in a rapture because the Bible teaches that there's going to be this time where we will be, and I'm quoting now, caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air. That's what it says. And that caught up idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, caught up is raptured. So there's going to be this rapture. And we are going to meet him in the, in the air. Now, the only debate that people have then, there's going to be a rapture. The only debate is when does exactly does the rapture happen? Like, does the rapture happen and we are all in heaven with him for a period of time while all the this really bad stuff is happening down on earth and then we come as the armies of heaven? Is that what happens? That's what I understand happens. But others say, no, that's not what happens. You actually meet him in the air, and then we immediately come back with him uh, is, the way, is the way some understand it. So either way, I'm not uh, trying to make a huge deal out of it, but here's what Jesus says in uh, John, John chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. He says to the apostles, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So B, on lesson 36, before his death, what did Jesus tell his disciples in order to, to comfort them? We gave them these four promises. In heaven, there are these many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare specifically for you, secondly. Just as surely as I'm going away, I'm going to come again to receive you. And where I am, there you are going to be with me. And then there's more about this, this idea of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through, through 18. So what's going to happen to Jesus' followers who have already died? They're going to be raised. They're going to be, as part of the rapture, there's going to be a, a resurrection of the dead in, in Christ. What about the people who are still alive? They're going to be caught up with Jesus in the, uh, in the clouds. And then one other passage you have in that lesson is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there's additional information given there about this time of the rapture. Probably the most important one is that it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So it's going to happen very quickly. So a lot of times when people think about the rapture, I know as I was a kid, I always just think about it as the rapture just sort of happens slowly and we just sort of ascend up kind of slowly. And we're just kind of going up like this. 
and I see you over there. <laughs> and I go, didn't think you'd be going. <laughs> and you just sort of, but no, the Bible says it's, it's in the twinkling of an eye. It happens in, in an instant, and we are in the, in the presence of the Lord. All right, and then we return, and he returns with his armies, and lesson number 37, and all the stuff that I, I told you there, right? So skip that and go to lesson 38 then. We'll do 38, 39, or 40 here, but uh, I just want to know, you guys, I, I skipped, I was doing lesson 37, you guys all knew that I had skipped 36, and then I'm scrambling around for what's going on here, and then finally David says, you know, you skipped the lessons. So it would have been okay for you to say, hey, what about 36, before I teach all of 37? <laughs> all right, fine. Satan's final doom. Later, following a final attempt to lead a rebellion against God near the end of Jesus' kingdom, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire that God prepared earlier for him. Prior to his eventual final doom, Satan's going to be bound, Revelation 20, for a period of a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released temporarily. And what's he going to do? And here's what he goes to do. He tries to lead a rebellion. And for reasons that I won't bore you with because we don't have time, but there will actually be people at that time. This is, not, this is not the eternal state yet. This is an intermediate time. So you've got the present age. You've got the age to come. The age to come has, the present age has a bunch of phases to it, right? The present age that we're in now has had a bunch of phases to it. Starting at creation, the Garden of Eden, that was a phase. You ain't in Eden anymore, okay? So that was a phase. Um, the law, being under the law and the sacrifices and the temple and all that, that was a different phase, wasn't it? We're not in that anymore either. So now we're in a phase, if you will, called the age of the church, some call it. Um, and then there's going to be another phase called the, the kingdom, this kingdom phase. And then there will be the eternal state after that. Uh, so, so you have the present age and then you have the age to come. And the age to come will have these two phases, just like the current phase has several phases. And one of those will be this, it's almost perfect kingdom, but not completely. You still have people in it who still have the capability to rebel. In fact, in the kingdom, you'll have some people there in their glorified bodies and some people not. Well, that'll be weird, you'll say. But you know this has already happened. Have we, have we already seen a time where you have someone in their glorified body and other people who are not? When? I gave it to you tonight. I didn't mean to wake anybody up. But when, at the resurrection, right? Jesus was in his glorified body, but the apostles were not. And so this has already happened, and you will have that in a, in a larger scale in the, in the kingdom. But there will be people who will be capable still in their sin nature. They're not perfected, not in their glorified bodies, still able to rebel. Satan's released for a period of time, start, stirs up this rebellion, and there are people who say, yeah, I'm with you. Let's go and take, let's go and take Jesus. And of course, he puts that down uh, very, very quickly. So what does that tell you about sin? Sin is stupid. Um, you know, if insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result, he's been working at this for a long time. And he's still going to try it one final time at the end. And, of course, it's going to go nowhere. His final destination is in hell along with his demons and followers. So that leads to 39, a dreadful destiny for unbelievers. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, it talks about a judgment where there's this great white throne of judgment. A great white throne of judgment. And all small and great stand before it. And the books are opened. Plural. And these are books that record the thoughts, the attitudes, the everything an omniscient God knows everything about every person. And people are there because they have rejected God's solution to sin in Jesus Christ. And God is showing them all the consequences in their own lives, thoughts, hearts, words, actions 
of that rejection for every person. So there are the, the books are opened. And people are shown that this judgment now that you're undergo is a just judgment because of all of these things. But then there's another book called the Book of Life. And in it are written the names of those who are, whose lives are attached to the Lamb of God. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, your name is in the Book of Life. And your name can never be removed from the Book of Life. And as a matter of fact, God put your name in the Book of Life before you were born. And God has brought you to such a time as this to hear the gospel, to be used of him in his world, and then to be brought to him in, in the future. So it always, always, always comes back to your relationship to Jesus Christ. And your eternal destiny is determined based upon your relationship to Jesus Christ. It's a dreadful destiny for unbelievers. But lastly, lesson 40, there's a blissful paradise for believers. So the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, those are about what we normally think of as heaven, the eternal state. And it's only two chapters, so you don't have a ton about it. Uh, you have a whole bunch in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, about the kingdom. And then the kingdom comes, Revelation chapter 20, you have a bunch of information about the kinds of things that will go on there, the kind of industry we'll be involved in, the kind of world it'll be, an almost perfect world, almost. And then you have the eternal state. You just have these couple of chapters. A lot of uh, theologians conclude, as do I, that the eternal state will largely be a continuation of the kingdom, that we will still serve in the forever with the Lord, and we will be gifted differently. And we will serve him differently and in different ways. But we will do it forever. And there'll be all kinds of activity going on in the kingdom and then in the eternal state after that. But the difference is this will be a completely perfect state. And so what's really important about this is B, in Revelation 21, who is the Lamb that's at the center of this? Of course, it's Jesus, who's been called the Lamb of God throughout. But notice what will not be found in this new holy city. No tears, no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, no sinners, no night, nothing that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, no curse on the earth. Anybody looking forward to that? And some of the most striking features of this eternal, the eternal city is its beauty, the absence of all of those things that were mentioned above, its glorious radiance, its walls, its gates, its foundations, its massive size, the presence of God the Father and the Lamb, the river of life, the tree of life, and its fruit. And by the way, the tree of life is there. Do you guys remember the tree of life? That was at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And so paradise has has been restored. How long will we live there? Forever and ever. So, question is, I would, that would be great. You guys want to go on a cool vacation? <laughs> I, would love to, I would love to see all there. And whether or not we're all there together depends on our relationship with Jesus. Whether or not your loved ones are there with you depends on their relationship with Jesus. This whole class has been about giving people the message that's centered on the person and work of Jesus. And so I encourage you to be diligent about doing that. You've got the Story of Hope book. One way to do that is say, hey, you want to do a survey of what the Bible teaches about, about Jesus with me and go through that with, with someone. There's, leaders guide, there's a leader's guide that goes with it that you download for free that helps you to go through the, the stuff. But I think I told you that the, the people who publish this have all kinds of shorter ways to do this. So if you are interested, they've got the story of hope, but just in this little booklet form. So it's reduced. It doesn't have 40 lessons in it. It's got fewer than that, but it hits all the, 
the highlights. I don't have one of these for all of you. If I loved you, I would have bought one for all of you. But, <laughs> but I'm just letting you know that that's, that's available. And then at the end of your Story of, of Hope book, if you look at the remaining pages, remember when we started out with these eight, the bridge to life, and you had these eight issues? So now those eight issues have been expanded into these 40 lessons, but it really still comes down to these eight issues. And so those remaining pages are all reminding you about God, man, sin, death, Christ, cross, faith, life, and giving you an explanation of, of each of those. If you've got that, if you know those eight, now you know those expanded into these 40 lessons, but you, if you can give someone those eight things, and you can do that fairly quickly, then you've got a model and outline for you to, to give the gospel to folks, okay? 8.15, all right? We didn't cover a bunch of the stuff, but still, we got done at 8.15. <laughs> hey, thank you guys.